there was a teacher that uh, sent me a text this, this week, a friend of ours, many of us know her who, who teaches here, um, and she, she sent this text message and said, I have a favor. Uh, would you please ask your church members to do another prayer walk throughout LeBlanc Middle School, especially down the sixth grade hall in the science building? Satan is rising up. Please cast him out of here. Claim this area for God. We would all deeply appreciate it. Um, so you know how we need to be praying, and, you, and, and something, I don't know, for me, Spiritual warfare is a real thing, okay? And so, you know, there's, uh, I'm so grateful that this teacher had a church that she could reach out to and say, um, we know that you guys are meeting there and we know that something different should be going on in that place because uh, a gospel-centered, Jesus-following church is meeting in in that place. So this morning, a few of us took an opportunity to do that, but I'm just, I'm setting that opportunity before you uh, today, just know how to be praying, and if you feel led to uh, during the service or after um, after we wrap up here today, if you wanted to go down these halls and just pray and just ask God to uh, redeem and restore and renew uh, every square inch of this place, it would be it would be a good thing. It really would. Um, so we we're now journeying through uh, week three of the book of Nehemiah. And, and I thought maybe it would be uh, okay for us maybe just to, just to recap why we're doing this, why we feel led to walk through the book of Nehemiah with this group. I believe that it has like definite bearing on our lives, uh, what we learn in this book and what we learn in this, this uh, historical account of, of Nehemiah and, and his, um, his role in the kingdom. This book, I think the theme throughout is, is, is around two things, and you're going to hear me say those a lot today, probably. Uh, these two themes of renewal and restoration. Um, sometimes we use the word revival um, to, to, to come around. It's, it's the same idea, uh, just a, a refreshment, a renewal, and, and restoration. And renewal is for our hearts. Renewal being a, a fresh breath of life, a fresh breath of passion. Uh, and all of you know that we, at times as believers, um, we need this in our lives. We need this in our walk, uh, that, that sometimes our, our spiritual lives will, will become stale. Um, they will become absent uh, because of whatever reason, whatever circumstance we may be in. And so we need renewal. We need revival often. We need a fresh breath from God often. And then restoration. That's the other part that you'll hear me talk about um, Today And that's maybe another way to frame that up is to say that this is remembering God's truth so, so, that, so that our hearts would be linked to God again. You remember we kind of closed out with that idea last week uh, uh, that, that uh, we want our hearts linked up to God. We don't want, we're not asking for God to change his heart and to, to fit what our hearts feel and want. What we're asking is for God to change our hearts and to link them up with what, what his heart beats for. And so that is restoration, and that's what we need also. We need a fresh breath from God. We need a, we need a fresh passion, a stirring, a, 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 a fresh breath of life. Uh, and then we need to be reminded of truth, and we need to be uh, restored so that our hearts will be linked back to God. And so those two things are the theme of this book. And, and might I say, renewal is not complete unless restoration happens. And restoration cannot 
be complete unless we have this fresh passion for God and His beauty. So these two things, they, they have to happen together. See, if, I just, if we just have a moment here where we just get a fresh breath from God and, and, and His truth doesn't change our hearts, then it doesn't mean anything. And, and, and likewise, if we feel like we're, our hearts are being shaped by truth and we want to walk in obedience, but we don't have a fresh breath of the Spirit of God, uh, then, then it's, it's religion at that point. And so we need both of these. We need both of these um, to, to see renewal and to see restoration. And these two, these two ideas, these two realities, they, they collide uh, into a beautiful picture of God's glory in this book, in the book of Nehemiah. And so we'll see this all throughout. And we need this. We need this because we have this tendency to grow cold toward God. It's just in our nature that we would do that, that we would grow cold toward Him. And we have this tendency to, to wander from truth. And so we need these two things. We need these two components. And what I, what I know and what I realize is week in and week out, we can sit up here and tell you effective ways that you can go out and make much of Jesus and how to reflect Jesus and how to make a big deal of God, bring about God's glory in this neighborhood and to the nations. We can tell you practical ways, uh, amazing ways to do all of that, but but the reality is if these two components, renewal and restoration, if these two components were a reality in your life, like if these, if these two things came and collided in your own hearts, then, then we would just need to get out of the way. That we wouldn't have to sit here and, and harp on what it looks like to reflect Jesus and, and what our existence is to make much of God and to glorify God. We wouldn't have to do that. That, that your heart would be stirred and it would be shaped by the truth. And this, this always moves us. It always moves us. And so what you don't need from, from me today or ever, actually, is another pep talk. You don't need another en encouragement uh, uh, or a challenge or an outline on five ways to reach your maximum potential. Like, you don't need that garbage from me. That's not what you need today. And what you need more than anything is renewal and restoration. You need a fresh breath from God, and your heart needs to be shaped by His truth. Those are the two things that you need, and they need to come together, and that's why we journey through the book of Nehemiah, because we're going to see this theme over and over and over. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, things really, I, 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 a lot of times, practical and biblical oppose one another, right? We want, it, we want practical things. We want like systems and processes, and a lot of times Scripture doesn't let us do that because there's faith involved. And so it's always stepping into some unseen things, some, un, uh, uh, some, some systems that haven't been formulated or some processes that we're unaware of. Uh, and, and so Nehemiah actually gives us a few practical things. And so we can find those in Scripture, but they're not always there. Um, Jesus says some very impractical things about following him. It doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't line up, but it's hard for us to step in that way. But when we have faith and when we've been given a new heart, uh, then we can do that, and he gives us that. And so don't always read the Bible for practical, step-by-step -step ways to live life because faith is involved, and it always kind of messes up practical. But here we have practical. Uh, Nehemiah will begin to walk through some required tensions some collisions, that's the word I'm using today, tensions or collisions, uh, and, he, and he walks through a few of these to say this is what it's going to take to bring about renewal and restoration. 
There's some components here, some practical things that's going to have to take place, some tensions that we're going to have to deal with in order to bring about renewal and restoration, in order to bring about a fresh breath from God, and in order for our hearts to be shaped by His truth. And above all of this, let me just say, um, as, as just a blanket statement, following Jesus in and of itself is tension. It's a collision. I mean, you look, I mean, at the very front of John, we've talked about this a thousand times, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is a moment, that is, that is a colliding moment when Jesus steps out of heaven onto earth among men, taking on humanity, remaining fully God in all of that. There's a collision going on. There's, there's a collision between spiritual and natural that's happening here. And so just the fact that we, that we have an opportunity to follow Jesus, that we, we have his gospel, his good news, an account of his life in, in our scriptures, that he breathed the very words of our scriptures, it, it's, it's tension and collision in itself. And so I'm going to walk through just a few of those practical things that Nehemiah kind of give, gives us a, an example uh, and we saw last week that there was a, there was a, a calling and a burden, right? And, and so we have to figure out calling and confirmation, how those two collide. Calling and confirmation. Look at verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. So our story started. You remember David opened up this, this series uh, and, and in verse 1 of chapter 1, you saw that we started in the month of, of Chislev. Um, that is the, our November, December time frame. Um, and, and, and here we're saying now that we're in the month of Nisan. And this is March, April time frame. And so last, last week I kind of came around this idea that Nehemiah, when he received the news and his heart was broken and he was crushed and he was burdened, that he began to pray and he began to fast. And now here we are. This is roughly four months later. So he didn't say this little um, reaction to what he said, a little prayer reaction, and then go on his way. He went and he got on his face and he wept and he fasted and he prayed. And he did this for four months. Four months. And so that's how much has gone by. That's how much time has gone by since God has invaded Nehemiah's comfortable life, broke his heart for the things that broke God's heart. Four months have gone by. And so just when I opened up my study of this verse, when I looked at verse 1 right here, uh, the, the big theme that I saw right there was just waiting. The, the word wait just kind of, just really kind of was over these verses right here because my heart broke for something, right? God done something. He showed me something, and it broke my heart. And, and our reaction would be to step into that, to, to address that, to react to it, to go for it. But Nehemiah sat and he waited. And he prayed, and he fasted, and he waited, and he prayed, and he fasted, and he prayed for opportunity, and he waited for the opportunity. And here we are, four months later, sitting in this state of burden over his city. Enormous weight of brokenness and sadness for his people, waiting. And what's interesting is that this call wasn't a supernatural call, um, right? Like, his heart was shattered by regular conversations with friends. He met up with his, his brother, uh, or his brothers, it may not be his physical brothers, but, but uh, uh, his family, his people, um, and Susa is what Scripture will tell us. And he says, hey, how's, 
How's things going in Jerusalem? I know that there's people there working. How's it going? Bad news crushed his heart. It wasn't like a, wasn't like a call from Moses for, that Moses received, right? Like there wasn't a burning bush moment where, where God just spoke to Moses with a voice that he was able to hear clearly at just this moment this, uh, where it was obvious that it was God. Or it wasn't like this moment with Saul where he was kicked from his, his, his mule and, 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 and he got to see Jesus face to face. It wasn't one of those supernatural ones. It was just in the everyday routine of his life that God just interrupted and invaded him in his comfortable life and shattered his heart. And so this is a real struggle for us. And I, I thought this was interesting. To discern whether you've been called to something by God or is it just like a feeling you've got? You know, I mean, I wrestle with that all the time. It's like I'm, I'm feeling like my heart's feeling this. I'm, I'm feeling like I have a conscience about this. But God, is this you calling me to this? Like, am I supposed to do this? How do I know, God, this is your voice? How do I know that this is you calling me to this and not just some idea that I've come up with? Because I don't want to step out of God's will. And if it's my idea, it's probably going to be a mess anyway. So God, how do I know? How do I discern that? And so I thought it would be nice for us maybe just to stop for a moment and, and, and address that because that's a reality, I think, for most of us. That, that most of us struggle with knowing what, who's, like, who's, who's calling the shots in our life and how to distinguish between those voices. And I'll say this. Every single time, you have to go here first. You have to go to God's Word first. The Bible, the God-breathed, Spirit-inspired Word of God is where we have to start. He will never, God will never, ever call you to something that might violate this. And so if you feel like God's, God's at, He's telling me to step into this thing or to, to, to address this situation or to engage this, this, this person or whatever it is, uh, he's not going to call you to anything that will invade this word. I have a, um, I guess maybe it was, oh, probably about eight years ago, I had a, a friend of mine that I work with who he and his wife were separated and going through a divorce, and he didn't want it. You know, he was fighting for his marriage, and he and I were, having a conversation about it, and I was just encouraging him about some things that he might need to do to, to step into to re restoration and reconciliation. And one of the things that he said to me uh, that a, a pastor had told him, uh, he was talking to another pastor, was that his wife was given a spirit of divorce, and that's why all this was going down. How harmful is that? You know, and he's sitting there, he's like, what is, is that true? Like, he's asking me, Blake, is that true? Does my wife have a spirit of, like, he has no, not, no biblical background or basis, but he's, he's asking me, is that true? And I'm like, well, let's see if God gives anyone the spirit of divorce. No. No. We might try to make up some of those things to justify, but, but let, let's go there first so we know what God's word says. And that when someone says, well, the reason your marriage is breaking apart is because God's given one of you a spirit of divorce. That's, that's not helpful. That's not God-honoring. That's opposed to God's word. And so that's, it's, it's, we need to know this. We need to know God's word so that we, when we hear something that violates it, that we can call it out, that we can address it, we can identify it. Test the calling that you think you have with the Scripture. And so if you're trying to figure out, God, you call me this, you want me to do this, uh, how do I confirm it? I, I hear the calling. Is it me or is it you, God, 
Test it with Scripture. So that's the main um, resource that you have for trying to confirm any call that you might feel like God has on your life. And the second one is the church. You've been given the church to help you discern calling, to help you confirm calling, especially among the leadership of the church. Um, Just Hebrews 13, just the first part of, of verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as though as those who will have to give an account. So church leadership has been given to you as a resource to help discern your calling, to help confirm any 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 conscious that conscience that you might feel about stepping into something. It that's what we're here for. And we're here to do that to care for you and to help point you to reflect Jesus more and more accurately. That's our, that's our hope, and that's, that's a resource for you. Um, but not just church leadership. Um, again, and I don't want you to think that I'm saying, hey, everyday decisions need to be run by the church leadership. No, what I'm trying to say is that there are major life-changing decisions, callings, and things like that that you're going to experience in your life. Um, and it's helpful to get good godly counsel to discern your calling. This might look like a ministry calling, like, I think God wants me to step into this role of serving the kingdom, and I'm not sure even if I should or what that looks like. Um, so your leadership is there to help you confirm that and, and dialogue about that. Job changes, big, big moments where it's going to move you or you, you have this opportunity and you're kind of wrestling with the idea. It's good to get godly counsel on that. You have that resource, relationships. If you're trying to figure out if this is the person, if this is the one, uh, or if this friend here, I'm not sure what's going on there, the church is there for you to to discern those things and to walk with you through those. Um, So you have church leadership, and then you have community, obviously. And everybody knows that I was going to go there, right? Because this is very, very, very important. You need a solid group of gospel-centered friends who's going to walk through things with you like this, who would help you have these conversations and to, to discern what God's calling you to or what he's calling you away from. You need that. You need people in your life that you can be open to, that your heart can be open to, and that they can speak life into you. You need that. And so you need these people. You need, you need scripture. You need the church. I, whenever we, um, it was November 2010, Whenever we knew that God was calling us to plant Sulphur Community Church, or at least I knew that. Ashley hadn't, she hadn't received that yet, uh, but I'd received that. I was at work, and it was about 3 o'clock in the morning, and it was just very, very clear. Very, very clear. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I, I wrestled through that a little bit, and I brought it up to Ashley, and we talked about it a little bit, and, and you've heard, most of you've heard the story um, that, that the timing, her timing and my timing weren't the same. Um, she thought I was a lunatic uh, for a few months about that, but then God started working on her heart about it. Uh, but, but I bring that up to say that it started with a calling on, on my life. It, it started with something God was doing in my heart. And then I had to figure out what I was going to do with that. Was I going to say anything? Was I even going to do anything with it? Was I going to ignore uh, and and I, I couldn't shake it, and so I knew that quickly that I wasn't going to be able to shake this or ignore it. Um, and so once Ashley and I, we, we felt like this was what God was calling us to do, we didn't just jump out and do it because we needed confirmation. We needed, we needed godly counsel. 
We needed Christian brothers and sisters to come around and scrutinize what we felt like God was calling us to. We needed that. And so we spent a few years talking to close friends first, saying, we're opening our hearts. What do you think about this? And speak all the good things and all the constructive criticism into our hearts that we need so that we, so that we can discern this and confirm whether this is what God wants us to do or not. And then, and then once, we, 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 once we felt like among a group of people that this, was the, this calling was being confirmed, then we went to our church leadership with it. And then we sat down with them and said, here's, here's what we feel like God's calling us to do. And here's how it started. It started with uh, me not even paying attention to God in the middle of the night one night, and this is what happened. Uh, and and it's, it's progressed to here, and here's where we are now. And so it's not just something where we're responding like we feel like God's calling us to do. We've, we've been doing work to confirm this call. And then we spent another year and a half with church leadership, just let, letting them help us discern this call as well. And so understand that there's a calling and then there's a confirmation period and that confirmation period looks a lot like digging into scripture letting it shape your heart getting in christian community and letting them speak into your heart using church leadership to help discern some of these things all of these are means for us to confirm god's call on our life and so that's what we see we see this 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 collision moment between calling and confirmation See, I could have just left it there that night. I could have just left the calling there that night and ignored the fact that God called, to, called us to do this and never brought it up again. But then because there was a calling, it had to collide with some confirmation. Tell us yes or tell us no. We're good either way, but just we need to confirm. Is this God calling us to do this or is this just some harebrained idea that we've come up with? And so that's what the years of, of conversations were about was making sure that it wasn't our idea. We didn't want it to be our idea. And so there's, there's that collision moment, and then there's a collision moment between prayer and action. And this one's very, um, we'll harp on this one a lot, prayer and action. And I'm not saying that prayer is not an action. Don't hear me say that at all. In fact, prayer is probably the most powerful and important action that you can, you can take. Prayer is. But let me say this. Private prayer God-seeking prayer and, and privacy will always lead to public deeds. It'll always lead to public fruit. So if I'm, if I'm searching God and, and praying in private and, and, and asking Him to do something, it's going to start leaking out of me to where you're going to be able to see it. And so Nehemiah verses, chapter 2, verse 4 through 5 says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to, to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And that, there's three words there. And I said. There, it went from a moment of four months of fasting, praying, weeping, searching God's heart, to now I'm, I'm moving, and now I'm fixing to speak the words. And I said to the king, that's, that's his prayers at that moment have just moved to action. God, give me favor in the sight of this king. I'm fixing to do the unthinkable in front of him. God, give me favor. So what does this mean for us? What is prayer and action and what Nehemiah is doing? What does it mean for us? I'll say this. I believe 
that Jesus wants to save people in sulfur. I believe that with all my heart, that there are those in our community, in our city, who don't know Jesus. And Jesus wants to save them. I believe that God loves people who are far off and wants to give them life and to bring them into his family. I believe that with all of my heart. And I also believe that it would be easier for me to shove a camel through the eye of a needle than to save anyone. I can't do it. I can't do any of it. I believe that with all my heart. So if God doesn't move, people won't get saved. Like God's got to do, God's got to do that part. And, and I believe he wants to do that part. I believe he wants to adopt people into his family, the scriptures that we read this morning. I believe that with all of my heart. And he has to do it. So this reminds us of the last two weeks. Would God break our hearts over those who don't know him? Would he break our hearts over the things that he weeps and cries for, the people that don't know him, who aren't saved? Would he do that? And would our response be, when he breaks our hearts about that, would our response be that we get on our faces before him? Would we pray? Would we fast? Would we beg him for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit into the lives of people who don't know him? Would that be our response? We know Jesus' heart. We know he wants to save people in sulfur. We know that he alone is the only one that can do that. Would that break our hearts? And would our prayers collide with action? Would it move us? Would our prayers actually move us? And the beautiful part in all of this and what's very interesting is that God is sovereign over the ends and the means. He's sovereign over both of those. He does the rescuing and he does the redeeming. He does all of it. He does the restoring. He does the renewing. And he's invited us to participate in all of this work. He's invited us to do that. That's, that's the plan. That's the plan for the church is that he's going to do it all he has to do it all because none of us have the power to save. None of us have the power to do anything apart from the Spirit of God moving and working in us. And, and so God's saying, here's my heart about the city. Here's my heart about this world. Would it break your heart? Because my heart's broke. And would your response be to weep and to fast and to pray? And then would your prayers collide with action? He's calling us to participate in this redeeming, this restoration, this renewal. He's calling us to participate in all of this. So guess what? Jesus is not crossing the street and going to your neighbor's house today. He's not. He's not going to knock on the door of your neighbor's house today. He cares about your neighbor. He wants your neighbor saved. He's not going across the street to knock on the door. Something much more miraculous is going to happen. He's going to send you to do it. Broken, powerless you. He's going to send you to do it. That's a miracle. And so we're praying, yeah, God, save our neighbor, save our coworker, save our friend. But if I don't get up and move on that, then my prayers are not running really deep. Like if I don't get up and, and move on that, God, save my coworker. 
Give me an opportunity to talk to him about Jesus. Give me an opportunity to reflect Jesus in his life. So we have to pray, and then we have to be ready to move. You can pray for a healthy marriage that reflects the gospel and the goodness of God, and you should. You should pray for that. What a miracle, right? What a miracle that sinful man and sinful woman would be joined together and live together to display the glory of God. What a miracle, right? That's, that's unbelievable. But if you think it's going to go well just because you love one another, you're an idiot. I mean, really, like if you just think that that's going to that's gonna be the fix for it, yeah, you better pray, right? But you better take your lady out on a date too, man. Like you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, pray, but then act, it's, or it's not going to go well. So you can't just pray for justice, right? You can't just pray, God, I want justice in my city without loving people. You can't do that. Like, God, I want justice to be done in that area. I want freedom, and I want redemption to happen in this area, but I don't want to get, I don't want to get in none of it. I don't want none of it on me. That's crazy. And so our spiritual life and our natural life, it has to collide at some point. We can't just pray for people to be saved and not be willing to proclaim the gospel. We can't. That's silly. So prayer and action must collide in order for renewal and restoration to take place. These things can't be separated. They have to, they have to be cohesive. They have to be interwoven. Renewal and restoration won't happen by prayer alone. And it won't happen by action alone. So I can do a bunch of things. That doesn't mean that renewal and restoration is happening. Or I can pray a whole bunch. It doesn't mean that renewal and restoration is going to happen. Those two things have to come together. So prayer and action coming together in this collision. Faith and planning coming together in this collision, in this tension. Look at verse 6 with me. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him. This is just a note saying that this is a private moment going on here. That this isn't like... Uh, like Nehemiah has this kind of access to the, to the king and the queen. The king said to me, how long will you be gone and when, when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king was granted me, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah has done his homework. He has done the legwork. He has faith, right? He has, he's, he's stepping in faith right now, but he's also done some planning. He's also done some homework. And so there's this, this collision moment of faith and planning now that's going on. That he knows how long he's going to be gone. He's got an answer for the king. How long will you be gone? I'm going to be gone this long. He knows what he needs. Here are the travel documents that I need to make it to my destination safely. He knows exactly what to ask the king. He even knows who the keeper of the king's forest is. I know him by name. I've done my homework. I've done my research. I've planned for this. This moment that I've been praying over and fasting for for four months, I haven't just, I haven't just sat there and done that. 
I've been planning. I've been putting spreadsheets together and all of these organizational charts, and I, and I think I've got a plan. And all the planning in the world, here's what we need to catch on to, is insufficient for a pagan God to sponsor something like this. You can plan all you want. You can do all, of you, all, all the things that you want, but you're not going to convince a pagan king to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. I mean, think about that. You want me to fund an operation that will rebuild this kingdom where, where you guys are going to worship another god besides me? He's not, like, I don't care what kind of plans you put together. This is insufficient. Nehemiah has prayed and he's planned and he's moved, but God is fixing to have to accomplish the impossible here. He's fixing to have to do it. This collision moment of faith and planning. Nehemiah's done some work. Now, there's, now, it's, now it's on faith. God, I've sought you. Your heart breaks for this too. You care about these people too. You want to see your city restored too. I want these same things. So I'm going to have faith that when I take this step, when I make these actions, I've got the plan and that you're going to, you're going to do the impossible. You're going to turn this thing around. And so just imagine the fear, right? Like he, he's getting up to speak now. And we didn't cover, we're, gonna, we're getting a little out of order here, but look at verse 1 with me for a second. We're going to go back through these verses. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? Because that's the only reason you should ever have a sad face in my presence, is if you're deathly ill. So what, you're not sick, so why are you sad? This has to be, right? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And Nehemiah responded exactly how he should have. Then I was very much afraid. Because now the king feels like, I don't want to be in his presence, that I don't like him, and that I'm sad when I have to come in his presence. That this isn't sickness that's causing this. My heart is just not in this thing. It's not in this thing. I'm not... I'm not enjoying this. I'm not enjoying his presence. And so I'm fixing, this is fixing to be a bad deal here. So that's how he responds. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. That's what you tell a king who might kill you if you're sad in front of him. Let the king live forever. I'm not upset that, that, uh, that you're here and I'm having to serve you. I'm, that's not what I'm upset, I'm upset about. I'm honoring you. Why should, my, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So Nehemiah is taking a huge risk here. He's taking a huge risk here. While he was praying and fasting for four months, he still had to do all of his duties, right? He had to fulfill his, his role of cupbearer. And during this fast, he refrained from looking gloomy like the hypocrites do. They stand on the corners and they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others and, and be made a big deal of. Does this sound familiar? Like Jesus was addressing this in Matthew chapter 6, right? And so Nehemiah knew that that wasn't, that wasn't the right way to fast. And so when I, whenever I'm fasting in private and I'm praying in private, when I go to do my normal duties every day, I need to wash up. I need to get myself together. I'm fixing to go into the presence of the king. And so I can't go in there looking this way and gloomy. And I don't want that kind of attention called on me anyway. This is a private moment between me and God. And so he was, he was truly seeking the Father in secret. He was truly praying, and, and praying in private, private prayers will always lead to public deeds and public 
good works and public fruit. And, and he, now he begins to show his sadness. After four months, now he begins to show some of his sadness in the presence of the king. He's taken a huge risk here. A huge risk. This would normally get you killed. Not just like you can't serve here anymore. It would, it would get you killed. And, and it was especially risky if there wasn't something obvious, obviously physically wrong with you, that you were sick or something causing you to be sad. Being sad of heart in the presence of the king was an insult to the king. It was an insult to him that you were communicating that you didn't enjoy being with him. And in this moment, Nehemiah had a choice. You're sad, Nehemiah. You, you look sad, but you're not sick. You're sad of heart. And so Nehemiah, at this point, he could say, oh, no, everything's fine. Everything's good. No, I'm fine. Or he could act out of a fear of the real one true God. And that's what he did. And we get this collision of fear and courage. Fear and courage as he speaks up. And we're going to continue to see this collision through the rest of the book. Through the rest of the book of Nehemiah, we'll, we'll see this. Jesus never calls people to easy stuff. Ever calls people to easy stuff. At least I haven't, sound, I haven't, I haven't read that in Scripture. I haven't seen anything where he's calling you to easy things. It's always very difficult, impossible, life-threatening uh, hardships and things like that. And so we'll have this tendency to be afraid. And I understand this. I understand that, okay, I've taken all these steps and I've seen all of these moments of tension where I've, I've been called and now I've confirmed this um, and I've prayed and now I'm moving to action. And, and now, because I'm moving out of action, it's, uh, it's a fearful thing now. Like, I'm taking a step now and I'm, I'm taking a step into the unknown and that's a bit fearful and I'm afraid of that. If you're thinking about getting married... You should be afraid of that. It should frighten you somewhat. It, it should. I would be concerned if you weren't. If you're not the least little afraid of following Jesus, you should be. You should, you should be to take Jesus into your workplace and say, I'm going to talk to my coworker about Jesus today. That should frighten you a little bit. should make you afraid a little bit. So following Jesus... It may cause, it, 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 like that call to follow Jesus, it, it's very risky, it's hard, it's dangerous, it costs convenience, it costs money, it costs pain. And I understand all the tendencies to be afraid, and I even experience those myself. But I'm not okay with it. I'm not okay being afraid. And I'm not okay for you being afraid. Uh, we tend to forget that God does not, he does not instill fear in us. He doesn't, he doesn't give us a spirit of fear. That comes from the enemy. And so while I understand that we would be afraid of some things, what I also know, because I know God's word, is it's not from him. That fear is not from him. And, and it's, it's understandable, but it's not okay to just remain in a fearful state, to be afraid and say, I'm not going to do this because I'm afraid. Or I can't deal with that because I'm afraid of that. I'm not going to say that because I'm afraid of the consequences. 
It, it, it's understandable, but it's not okay. Nehemiah is not a pastor. He's not a prophet. He's not an evangelist. He's not a super Christian. He's just a regular guy who's been captured by the beauty of God, and now he's broken over the state of his city. And that's why we're there. That's why we're looking at the story of Nehemiah. He cares enough to do something about it. He didn't just leave it and say, you know, I'll pray about it. Like, that's not where he left it. So many times we'll, we'll, we'll leave issues there. I'm just going to pray about that. And we never try to come around it and engage it because we're afraid of what it's going to cost, what it's going to take, whatever. So he didn't leave prayer there. He married it with action. He married faith with planning. He married fear with courage. Like all those things are realities. But here's, the count, here's how we counter them. Those things have to come together. There's never been a movement of renewal and restoration without somebody stepping out. And, and mixing these two realities together. We will not see renewal and restoration and revival in this city unless we're willing to marry those things together, unless we're willing to marry prayer with action, marry faith with planning. Like we're going to make a plan and we're going to have faith that God's heart is for this too, and, we're, and we're, here's how we're going to get it done. We're a little afraid, but our, co- our courage is going to overcome that because God does not give us a spirit of fear. That comes from the enemy. And he would love for us to remain fearful and afraid and not step out and do anything that would advance the kingdom of God. That's what, that's what he would love more than anything. So this whole gospel, this whole gospel is a collision. This whole idea of Jesus it is God in his holiness stepping out of heaven into this world full of hurt, shame, sadness, brokenness. This is a collision moment. It's a collision between light and darkness, between life and death. The gospel is a collision moment. And the sovereign God of the universe has extended two invitations. We don't the first invitation that God calls us to, that he's inviting us to, and is by far the best one, is to come to him. That's the, that's the best calling. The, the best invitation is to come. Come to me by faith in Jesus. Come. And the second calling is to follow him. And see, that's where we typically drop it. We'll say, God's calling you to come to him. He's inviting you to come to him. He's got two invitations. And yes, that, that is the most, the most vital and, and the best invitation is to come to him. But the second invitation is to follow him. The reason we don't have decision time here, you know, we don't do invitation time or, or decision time, is because Scripture never calls us to go and make decisions. Never. The Bible commands us, go and make disciples. Going into the world, encouraging people to follow Jesus with this good news, this message of who he is, that he's rescued them for God if they trust his leadership and his care. That's what we're called to do. And then baptizing those who believe, and who believe this message, who put their faith in Jesus, and to teach them how to walk in a manner worthy of this message. That's what we're called to do. That's what Scripture tells us to do. And so the invitation is to come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And the second one is to follow him. Follow him in obedience and listen to him and pray his heart 
and pray that your heart would be changed into what his heart is. So you come to God by faith, and then you join us striving daily as we try to follow him. So let's pray. Father, we love you so much.